0: running commentary. In Revelation chapter 1, it just says a revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must shortly take place. So what happens is that John the Apostle is on the Isle of Patmos for some reason. We believe he could have been exiled there. We're not certain because the text doesn't say that. But while he is on the Isle of Patmos, He falls into an altered state of consciousness. That idea of a Christian having an altered state of consciousness is very scary, because it sounds like New Age. We're not talking about New Age. Every one of us, hopefully today in this room, is conscious. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, maybe a little bit, conscious. We're all conscious, and we're all using our brains. But John's consciousness is altered. And suddenly, even though his eyes are open and his ears are still working, he doesn't see the things on the island. Suddenly he has a vision, and he sees things that are otherworldly. And he falls into a trance, or a vision. And Jesus appears to him in chapter 1, and begins to dictate letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. He says, John, I'm going to dictate this, and I want you to write it down. And then I want you to send these letters to the seven churches. And these letters contain three things. Every letter contains three things. First of all, a warning to the churches in Asia Minor, not to adopt the ways of the Roman Empire. In order to live, in order to have a job, in order to eat, certain things were required of you if you lived in the Roman Empire. One of those things was that you had to make sacrifices to Caesar. Usually it was done at mealtime. And you had to uh, give your allegiance to Caesar, pledge your allegiance to him. Just as we pledge our allegiance to the United States of America, they pledged their allegiance to the Roman Empire. And here we're Christians, and Jesus says, Don't adopt the ways of the Roman Empire. Your allegiance is to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God only. And the second thing he does is he calls them to repent and reorient their lives in the right direction. Now everyone in the churches has not compromised, but some have. And he calls them upon them to repent. And he calls upon all of those in the church, thirdly, to remain faithful uh, to God's kingdom no matter what. And the no matter what means even to the point of death. Because if you do not sacrifice to Caesar, and you do not give your allegiance to the Roman Empire, it could cost you your life. And he says Persecution's coming. So when we looked at verse 1, and he says that uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ... This is something that they don't know, but he's going to reveal to them, which God gave him to show his servants, that's the churches, people in the churches, things that must shortly come to pass, uh, then that's what this is talking about. These are things that are going to happen to those seven churches in the first and second century. Now then what happens in, and that covers chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Then in chapters 4 and 5, John has a second vision. We don't know if this happens immediately after the first vision or if he wakes up and then the next day it happens, but he has a second vision. He says, After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet. It said, Come up here and I'll show you things which must take place after this. And so suddenly in his New vision, he's standing in heaven. Now we know where he really is. Where is his feet? His feet are on the Isle of Patmos. His body's on the Isle of Patmos. But guess where he is in his vision? He's in heaven. And that's what chapters 4 and 5 are about. The vision of heaven that he sees. And he sees certain events that are going on there. And those events that are going on in heaven are simultaneous to the events that are going on on earth. In other words, he's getting a heavenly perspective in 4 and 5. He got an earthly perspective in chapters 2 and 3. So, while the persecution is going on on earth, guess what? He looks up in heaven and what's going on there? People are worshiping God. They're worshiping Christ. uh, They are proclaiming victory. They're singing songs. They're bowing their knee to... God, instead of Rome, and he's giving them a vision of what's going on in heaven. And then the third vision covers chapters 6 through 1910, 6 through 1910. And what these chapters cover, they describe in symbolic terms the persecution that's about to take place upon the earth, upon those seven churches. 6 through 1910 describe in symbolic terms. The kind of persecution that those seven churches are going to experience. And during this persecution, they're to remain faithful. Now, when I said symbolic, we're going to see words like beast. You know, he's going to talk about a beast, which refers to the Roman emperor. He's using a lot of symbolic language. He's going to talk about a prophet, a false prophet who represents Rome's religion. He's going to talk about Satan, who's behind the throne. And all of this is written to seven churches in the first century, and we need to understand what it meant to them. Now, I think the mistake that most Christians make when they read the book of Revelation is they put it all in the future. All in the future. But Scripture doesn't say things that must happen 2,000 years later. It says, I'm going to show you things that must what? Shortly come to pass. Six times in those first three chapters, Jesus said, I'm coming soon. You can expect it. And we always think that means second coming. But not in those chapters. It means I'm coming soon and I'm going to judge the church. Those of you who don't repent, I'm going to judge you. And it's going to happen. You're not going to see me coming physically, but I'm coming. That woman Jezebel who tells people that they should sacrifice the idols and eat meat the sacrifice to the Roman Empire. I'm going to take her out and I'm going to take her children out. You can count on it. I'm coming soon. I'm going to judge the church. Now, so that's what it meant when he said he was coming soon in those chapters. He wasn't talking about the second coming in those chapters. It has relevance to that church. If everything Jesus was talking about Referred to the second coming would have had no relevance for that first century church. He's talking to seven churches. But it does have application to us. Because are we a church? We better watch out who we give our allegiance to. We better make sure we don't adopt the ways of the nations that we live in. Hey, do you know that most Christians don't live in America? Do you know that there's Christians that live in Iran, there's Christians that live in Iraq, there's Christians that live in Yemen, there's Christians that live in Russia, there's Christians that live in Cuba, there's Christians that live in China, yeah. All these places. And guess what? you want the Christians to adopt the ways of those countries? Pledge their allegiance to Fidel Castro? Putin? Diatolans? See, when you think of Christianity, you think of it as American Christianity. It's how limited we think. He's saying don't adopt the ways of the Roman Empire and call and, and think that you can be a Christian and do that. And that has application for Christians worldwide today. We must make sure that we don't compromise, that we repent if we've compromised, and we remain faithful to Christ no matter what even if it costs you your life. Now, it hasn't happened too often in the United States where remaining faithful to Christ has cost you your life, but it's happening all around the world. And so the message is relevant for us as well. Now, we come to chapter 19. And now we're going to get into the future. Yes, Revelation does deal with the future. And that's what this last section of Revelation is about. 19 and 20 deal with future judgment. Christ said, I'm going to judge the churches if you don't remain faithful. But guess what? Well, what about the other people out there that don't claim any allegiance to Christ? What about the heads of these governments and their advisors? Well, they're going to be judged too. And so chapter 19 and 20 talks about the judgment of these lost people. And then chapters 21 and 22 talk about how the believers are vindicated and will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. So we're going to pick up at Revelation 19 and beginning at verse 11. Okay, verse 11. And chapters 19, verse 11, through all of chapter 20, we see judgments. We're going to see three judgments. Now let me tell you what those judgments are before we actually get into the text. Okay, three judgments in these two chapters judgment number one takes place in Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21 that's the judgment of the nations and their leaders the judgments of the nations and their leaders verses 11 through 21 okay then the second judgment Revelation 20 through uh, Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 10 the judgment of Satan Judgment of the nations, and next the judgment of Satan. And then, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, the judgment of the people. The judgment of the people, the masses of people who have made no commitment to Christ. Now, each of these judgments ends in the exact same way. Okay? Look at judgment number one, how it ends. Look at verse 20, Revelation 19, 20 talks about the beast and the false prophet look at the end of verse 20 these two were cast alive into the lake burning with brimstone that's the judgment of those national leaders hey, look at the judgment of Satan look down at verse 10 of chapter 20 the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone does that sound some familiar same thing that just happened that's the second judgment. Look how the third judgment ends. Look down at verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Three judgments in these two chapters, each one ends the same way. the fire, brimstone, the lake of fire. Now, it's very important that we be careful when we interpret these passages. And the reason is that these are visions, and visions are seen in symbols, visions come uh, are a group of symbols that have to be interpreted, so these are visions and these visions contain symbols, and symbols are not literal. And you had a dream last night of a big bear coming after you. And it happened on your street. And it happened, you know, this morning in your dream. And when the bear was just ready to grab you, suddenly it changed into a little baby. And it was smiling. And you just, instead of being fearful, you were happy. And you wanted to just wrap your arms around it. Now, you wake up and you tell your spouse, or your kids, or whatever, what that dream's all about, you would say, I wonder what that meant. You wouldn't say, oh, I have to watch out for bears today, <clears throat> or I have to watch out for babies today posing as bears. Okay, These are a series of visions at which contain symbols, and symbols are not literal. You have to figure out what they mean. And symbols are not logical. Your dreams aren't logical, and neither are visions. Okay. So if we try to put these events, now listen carefully. If we try to put these events in some logical, clear-cut, chronological order, yeah, that was it. I don't know if you heard that. The rest of the sentence of my finish said, "Good luck." Yeah. <laughs> If we try to do that, then we're going to miss the big picture. This is not chronological language, it's eschatological language. Not chronological language, eschatological language, uh, which means it is prophetic. And prophecies often are delivered in symbols and they have to be interpreted. And that's why people miss the first coming of Christ. There were prophecies, and the prophets talked about the coming of the Messiah, and in those Old Testament prophecies, he was a great general overthrowing the kingdoms of the world and setting up the kingdom in Israel. And here comes Christ on the scene, and guess what? They all miss him. He's born as a baby, not as a general. And that's why they couldn't accept him. And then he died, and they said, well, the Old Testament Messiah doesn't die, he conquers. He's a military leader, he conquers. So they all missed it, except for a few people. And when we, because they were taking things literally, they were interpreting symbols literally, chronologically, And when we do that, we fall into the same trap and we make those same mistakes. Now, you say, well, they should have known it. Oh, yeah, hindsight's 20-20. But they didn't know it. (laughs) We can only see how it fit together looking back on the situation. Well, Isaiah said this, and well, they didn't interpret that passage in Isaiah to mean the virgin birth. But now we look back and say, oh, I guess that's probably what happened. So... Does that make sense? So, the important thing is we get the big picture. Now I could stand up here and just give you some little chronological chart, and you'd all be happy. Because guess what? You wouldn't have to think. And it would confirm what you already believe. Okay? But I'm not going to do that. Okay? I put my life on the line every time I'm in class at Criswell College. Every day at Criswell College is my last day. You know why? Because I say things, that I feel are the truth, and it's probably going to cost me my job. Every day I tell my students, if I don't see you tomorrow, you know where I am. <laughs> I've joined the 9.5% of the people who are unemployed. Okay, now let's, let's get to the test. Okay? We've had enough fun here. Now, let's look at judgment number one today. Okay, The judgment of the national leader. And he's going to use a lot of the same language he used earlier in the book, because he's going to continue with that kind of language, but we're going to have to figure out what it means. So let's look at Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. John says this, Now I saw heaven open. Notice this is the second time he sees heaven open. This is like the fourth vision that he has in the book of Revelation. And behold, something grabs his attention, a white horse, And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, this verse, these verses are filled with a lot of information, so we need to make some uh, notes here. The first thing I want you to note is that this individual that John sees, the first thing he sees is a white horse. A white horse. And somebody who sits on that white horse. Now, back in... Now, this is in his vision. He sees a white horse. A flying horse. Somebody on that horse. Now, back in chapter 6, we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And one of those horses was a white horse, and on that horse was a beast. A beast riding a horse, which John later identifies as the emperor, the leader of the world at that point. And uh, he's riding this horse, and it's a horse that's conquering Generals and emperors, when they conquered a country, would ride on a white horse. And now he sees another white horse, but the one sitting on him is not Caesar, not the one who's conquered the world and subjected people to him. This horse is totally the opposite, and the rider is totally the opposite of the one who rode in chapter 6. Now, I want you to notice the names of the person who rides on this horse. First of all, in verse 11, he's called Faithful and True. That's his first name. In verse 12, it says he had a name that no one knew except himself. And then in verse 13, he's called the Word of God. So, we see that he has these three different names. Now, these names are mentioned earlier in the book. They're mentioned in chapter 1, they're mentioned in chapter 13, they're mentioned in chapter 17, and those names are associated with Jesus in those other chapters, thus identifying the rider on this horse as Jesus. Now notice it says he has a name that no one knows. The ancients believed that if you knew the name of a god or a demon, you actually was able were able to uh, uh, have power over that demon, you could control that demon, or you could control that deity. That's what this, That was a superstition they had. And so by John saying, he has a name that no one knows. He gives him other titles, true and faithful and word of God, but to say he has a name, a personal name that no one knows means no one's going to have any more power than he has. So you just need to know sort of the historical customs there. Now notice what he does. This one who sits on the horse, who's called faithful and true. Look at verse 11. In righteousness, he judges And makes war. Now, as much as judges and makes war is important, the phrase in righteousness is just as important. That means what he does is just. He is conducting an inquiry. He judges like a judge who sits on in the court, and he is not to be partial in any way. And that's what the word here, righteous, means. It means injustice he judges. Unlike the judges in the Roman Empire. And he's just in declaring war against these people. So he's, this is a, so, somewhat of a war scene. So this is ultimate justice. Now look how he's described. In verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Have we ever seen that before? Yes, back in chapter 1. Jesus, John says, I looked up, and I saw this being like a son of man, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Back in chapter 1 and verse 14, referring to Jesus, speaking about that he can sort of see through you. And look what else it says. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Now remember, this is a vision. There's a whole bunch of crowns on his head. Back in chapters 12 and 13, Caesar has many crowns. And Satan has many crowns on his head. And now we see Jesus has many crowns on his head, but the kind of crown he has is different. This crown is called a diadem. It's a royal crown. It's a crown that that, uh, that one wears who has ultimate authority. And what a contrast between the last kind of crown we saw on his head, big contrast between a crown of thorns and a diadem. So the one who was put to death and had a crown of thorns put on his head now is wearing a diadem. He is conquered and he is the royal leader. And then, look what else it says about how he's described in verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood? <clears throat> literal blood? Oh yeah, in the vision it's literal. But do you mean if Christ comes back and he judges the world suddenly we look up and we're going to say, oh, look at that blood. Boy, yes. Oh, yucky blood. you think it was fresh blood or old blood? Does it mean dripping in blood? Whose blood is this? What's he talking about when he said that his clothes were dripping with blood? Well, his blood or his enemy's blood? Is it that his blood, in other words, he died as a sacrifice and that this blood represents his death? Or does it mean he's defeating these people and the blood represents their death? You've seen enough television shows where there have been murders and suddenly you see the blood is splattered all over. Is it that he comes back and he squashes these people and their blood is on his Hands and on his garments? Is that what it refers to? Well, the commentators are divided over that. And most evangelical commentators will say, well, that represents his blood. But really, what's happening is John is, uh, his vision is very similar to a vision that Isaiah has, a prophecy in Isaiah. And I want you to keep your finger here and go over to Isaiah 63. Now, we won't look at the whole passage, but I'll just look at, take you to the relevant passage here, the relevant verses. Isaiah 63. And he's describing a battle. And uh, in this description, we see the same words that John uses. Very similar, at least. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 63, and let's say... uh, Verse two. Why is your apparel red? Look at that. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the wine press. You know, if you in the old days, if you tread in the wine press, whatever you were wearing would get red like the grapes. Remember that word wine press because we're going to come back to that. Here's an answer. I've trodden the wine press alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I've treaded... Trodden them in my anger. I'm not treading grapes. I've trodden them in my anger. I trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments. And I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. He goes on. And eventually he just goes down to verse 6 and he says, I've trodden down the people in my anger. So what we have is we have a war scene where the one who is redeeming his people and conquering the enemy defeats the enemy and it's the blood of the enemy that is on the road. So Isaiah basically answers that for us. So when you go back to Revelation and you see in verse 13 that his, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood then that describes defeating the enemy. Now I want us to stop right here and I want to again say are we talking about literal? If this is describing Christ coming back and defeating the powers of the world is he literally going to just sort of wipe them out with a you know a weapon and their blood is going to be on his clothes? Is it literal or is it symbolic? Now listen carefully. In the vision, it's literal. In the vision, he literally sees Jesus with a robe filled with blood. That's in the vision. But when he wakes up, he has to say to himself, what does the vision mean? He doesn't expect that to literally happen that way any more than you would expect the bear to turn into a baby in your dream, in real life. It was in your dream in real life. So this is what he sees in the vision, but this is not how it's going to literally work out. Okay. There's meaning behind the symbol. Okay, and that's what we're hunting for. So let's look at verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. They don't have any blood on theirs. Their garments. Followed him on white horses. Now, what are these armies in heaven? Who does this refer to? Does it refer to Christians who have been redeemed from the ages? Does it refer to angels? Not sure. Could be the Christians. We see the Christians are clothed in white linen throughout the book of Revelation. But look at them. Whoever these people are, they're in heaven. They're dressed not in army fatigues. Do you see that? They're not wearing armor, they're not wearing 60-pound backpacks, survival kits, weapons. They don't have any of that. Evidently, they're not going to get involved in hand-to-hand combat. Doesn't look like they're ready for that, does it? And they're on horses. White horses. Very important, it's white horses. Is this a heavenly cavalry? you think there's going to be, when Christ comes back, all these... Christians in white robes coming through the air on horses. And somehow these horses must have wings. No, but that's what he sees literally in his vision, but that's not how it's literally going to happen. The white horse certainly means throughout the scriptures, victory. This is an army, a mass of people following their leader Christ who conquers and they are part of this conquering party. Now, verse 15 says, out of his mouth, the one on the one horse, the one with the diadem, a whole bunch of diadems. Two dozen diadems on his head. What does that mean that he has all these diadems on his head? We're going say? Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Must be a sword swallower and a sword spitter. A sharp sword. That's the weapon that he has. This is how he's going to conquer those earthly forces. And with it, that sword that goes out of his mouth, he should strike the nations. Now what kind of weapon is that? What kind of weapon have you ever seen come out of a person's mouth? A sword, called a sword that comes out of a person's mouth. And then look what it says. He himself, in verse 15, will rule them with a rod of iron. That is a reference back to Psalm 2:7. And uh, it's interesting that this is uh, Psalm 2:7 talks about God's Messiah King who rules the world, sets up his kingdom, and rules the world with an iron hand, uh, which means that he has total control over the situation. The word ruled there, by the way, is shepherd. Back in Psalms 2, it actually means shepherd. He shall rule them with a rod, an iron rod. A shepherd carries a staff. He pulls in his sheep, keeps his sheep in, but he uses that same staff as a rod in order to beat off the enemies. And it's describing uh, a Messiah king who shepherds his people and keeps the enemies away. Now notice also in verse 15 that the word nations is in the plural. Do you see that? He will strike the nations. Not just Roman Empire alone. This is how we know that this is a future event. John already has said that Rome is going to fall. He said that earlier to their churches. He don't worry Rome's going to fall. but guess what? All the nations are like Rome. doesn't matter what the nation is, we're all like Rome. We all are in rebellion against God, and we are, you know, need to be judged. And so he's going to judge these nations who oppose His rule. And most nations do oppose these rule. He will rule them with an iron rod. And then it says, he treads the winepress. And I told you to remember that from Isaiah 63. He treads the winepress of the fearness and the wrath of Almighty God. He puts these people, in a sense, symbolically in a winepress. And he just sort of stomps them. And that's why his robe is all red. They're getting what they deserve. They're being squashed, in a sense. And it's Jesus who's doing the judging. And what he's doing is righteous. He's carrying out ultimate justice here. All these nations, all these people have gotten away with it for centuries. But guess what? They get away with it and they die. And I said, boy, I lived the life the way I wanted to live it. Didn't acknowledge that there was a God, and if I did, I rebelled against him, so what? Maybe they even said, Lord, if you're up there, strike me dead. Remember, that's what Ingersoll, the great atheist, said. Ingersoll challenged Billy Sunday, the evangelist, one time. He said, he heard Billy Sunday was preaching in town, and he went to that same town. Billy Sunday got up to preach. Ingersoll interrupted the sermon, and he said, If there is a God, I will give him ten seconds to strike me dead. Certainly, if you want to strike an atheist dead, one, two, ten Ha! No God. Well, guess what? He gets it. That's what John's telling us about. There's ultimate justice here. The wine press. And it's Jesus who is doing the judging. Not the Father doing the judging. Acts 17 says that he's committed all judgment to the, to the man that he raised from the dead. That's even Jesus Christ himself. And so we see that he does the judgment. Then in verse 16 it says this and on his robe and on his thigh normally where a real sword would hang a name was written here's what it was King of Kings and Lord of Lords and we all say yeah that's his name King of Kings and Lord of Lords you know I I nearly brought this book to class but uh, the Roman historian the guy who lived right at the end of the 1st century and into the 2nd century by the name of Suetonius. You need to get that book, by the way. My students have to read it. Suetonius. He writes a book called The Twelve Caesars. And one of the titles that the Caesars took for themselves long before Jesus took it was the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you, when you went to see the Caesar, if you got an audience with Caesar, you had to bow down and say, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what you said to Caesar. Why was he the King of kings? Because when Caesar would conquer a country, the King of that country was now subservient to Caesar. And thus, Caesar was the King of kings. And he was the Lord over all the lords, over all the landowners. He owned it all. So here, John's saying, Guess what? Caesar's not the real king of kings and the lord of lords. He's a usurper. You know who the real king is? Jesus. But it's a title that was very familiar to John's audience. So when John says king of kings and lord of lords, the first thing that comes to their mind is Caesar. Jesus is God Caesar. He's the real ruler of the world. And so that's how that little section ends. Now we have part two of that vision. And Look at verse 17. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. What in the world does that mean? Was he sunbathing or what? If he was right in the middle of the sun, he'd be burned. Well, maybe angels don't. And he cried with a loud voice saying, here's what the angel said. To all the birds flying in the midst of heaven, Come! Gather! For what purpose? For the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And so, in the second part of the vision, he sees an angel comes out and says. To all the birds, all the vultures, you know. Come together. We're going to have a great big feast. You're going to feast on all the people that are defeated. And that is, uh, in a sense, a call. This takes place before the fight actually takes place. Because he's saying, get together. Guess what? We're anticipating a great victory here. And you're going to benefit from it. And so, all the birds are called together. And then in verse 19, we see the battle itself. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, the armies, they gathered together. You see, there's two gathering together. The birds are gathering together in verse 17, and guess what? The kings and the people and the armies are gathering together in verse 19. And they're gathered together to make war against him who sits on the horse and against his army. So... Here we have a battle that's ready to take place, and the birds are getting ready to clean up after the battle is over. What kind of battle is this? Wait a second now. You're not thinking clearly. I can tell you that. I can just look at you and see that you're not thinking clearly. Here's an earthly army, and they're getting ready to do battle with a heavenly army? Wait a second. Oh, you mean they look up and they see in the sky? Oh, look at all those angels and those glorified people. <laughs> right, get your sword. Why you? do we have to fight these guys? What's this, an invasion from outer space? Earthlings fighting invaders from outer space? That sounds like science fiction, it? What's well, a vision? What kind of battle could that be? What's John trying to say? What's the vision saying to John? What's he trying to. Do? Get out of it. Is it actually just a human army? Is it at the end time that all the forces of evil on earth fight the forces of good on earth? Is that what it is? But in reality, there's a heavenly army that's going to step in. And what is talking about here? Remember Elisha? The uh, armies of Syria surrounded the city. And uh, this young man says to Elisha, he says, What are we going to do? Look at all these and Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. The kid says, we don't have a chance. Look at that army. We can't trade them off. That's on a horizontal level. Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. He opens his eyes and suddenly sees all the armies that have there. Oh, we're okay. And so when the Lord's on your side, you can put the enemy to flight. Is that what he's saying? Do you see how complicated it is? This isn't something simple. This isn't something that we should handle in a trite manner. To try to figure out all the symbols in detail and in some logical, chronological order is a major, major, major mistake, I think, from the standpoint of a uh, a professor of biblical exegesis, at least. So, what's he trying to say here? You have to figure that out. What's the big picture? Okay, the big picture. Now look at verse 1. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. So here we have these earthly leaders are captured, captured. The leader, the political leader, the religious leader, the cultic leader. They're captured. What does that mean? Symbolic. He He sees this in his vision. He sees a beast that's captured. Got that old beast? (laughs) A beast that's captured. Well, we know the beast represented the empire and represented the emperor in John's day. Maybe this represents just world leaders. We don't know what that is and the religions that support them. And these two, at the end of verse 20, were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. This is the end of the tyrannical leaders who have persecuted God's people. And the rest... Now watch this. The rest of their armies... Were killed. That's it? Why aren't they cast in the lake of fire? Aren't they bad guys, too? Oh, we got two judgments one for the beast and the prophet. They're cast in the lake of fire with brimstone. But the rest of the army, they're just killed. Die on the battlefield. The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the throne, on the horse, rather. So that sword, which comes from his mouth, which seems like it shouldn't be a violent sword if it just comes from his mouth, and yet they get killed. Uh, they just die. The rest of them just die. And then verse 21 says, "In the verse 21, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." That's all in the vision. That's what he sees in the vision. Is that how it's going to happen the next day? Is that how it's going to happen in the future, literally? Is that how your dreams come out? That's all in the vision. So what's really going on here? So you want details. And I'm going to give them to you. And the reason I can't is because I don't know. And I don't think it would be I would be as far off trying to give you the details as the people were in Jesus' first coming and him, Because they thought they had it all figured out. They thought they knew the details. They thought they knew the chronology. They thought they knew the way it was going to happen. Because they interpreted Old Testament prophecies literally. Didn't take into consideration the kind of literature that it was. This is apocalyptic literature. But here's what I can say. I think I can give you some information. Back in chapters 12 and 13, the beast and the false prophet and Satan defeat God's people. They put them to death. Jesus says, hey, that's going to happen. That's okay. Die. But don't, don't compromise. Keep your allegiance to the kingdom of God no matter what. Even if you're put to death. In chapters 12 and 13, it looks like They win. They defeat God's people. But here we see that they're ultimately defeated. It looks like they got away with it. But guess what? They don't get away with it. They are ultimately judged and they're ultimately defeated. And God's people, where are they? Hey, they're alive. And guess who wins? We win. It's we that defeat them. With Christ on our side. I can say that, I can give you that much out of that passage. I can't tell you how it's going to happen, but I can tell you this, we win. Now, I can tell you another thing that I can observe from the book of Revelation so far. Revelation talks about two feasts. There are two invitations that are given to feasts. The first invitation is to the wedding feast. And that's given to God's people there's going to be a great Messianic banquet called the wedding banquet of the Lamb, a wedding feast. And then the second feast mentioned in the Bible is the feast of the birds. So it's a feast that the birds are going to feed on the defeated. So you have two feasts. One to the believers, we're invited to the wedding feast. And then the unbelievers, are invited to another feast. One is the feast of the bride and one is the feast of the birds. In the feast of the bride, we're going to sit down with Christ and we're going to eat sumptuously. But in this other feast, the anti-God people, they're going to be the food of the feast. And the birds are going to feast on them. Now, let me ask you, is that how it's going to happen literally? I don't know that it's going to happen literally, but I can tell you the big picture. What's the big picture? The big picture is, in the end, we're with Christ, and we're alive. And we are vindicated, because we have been faithful. And just as Christ was faithful, even to the point of death, even the death of the cross, and never denied His Father, and He could have, He could have bowed the knee to Caesar, but He didn't. And they said, You won't? Okay. Death. And he remained faithful all the way to death, showing his allegiance. God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. And God will do the same thing for you. And that's what John's saying here. Now, in light of that, for us, we said, well, how then should we live? And how should we live? We should remain faithful, we shouldn't compromise. And we should make, remain faithful to the end no matter what it costs. So there is the judgment of the beast and the false prophet. And then next week we'll see the judgment of Satan and ends the same way for him. And then finally, the judgment of the masses of people. So we'll stop that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know this is not easy. We know that we shouldn't be frivolous when we handle this. We've it's done so often. People come up with these all crazy plans, ideas, and masses of people buy into it. Lord, hopefully we've been able to see how you speak through symbols and visions to get a main message across that we can't miss. And it has implications for us. It's a call for us and a call for Christians throughout the ages until you come remain faithful no matter what. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.